233 years, 115 justices, 95% of them white men. Welcome to the U.S. Supreme Court. But this week, those numbers could start to tip a little. For too long, our government, our courts haven't looked like America. Today, hearings will begin to confirm Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court to fill the seat of retiring Justice Stephen Breyer. She has a brilliant mind and a record of excellence. Jackson's a different type of judge, a black woman for starters. She'd be the first ever on the Supreme Court, but she also brings unprecedented professional experience. There is a direct line from my defender service to what I do on the bench, and I think it's beneficial. She understands the real world impact of judicial decisions on individual real people. But even if she's confirmed, how much influence can a history maker really have? I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Monday, March 21st, 2022. My L.A. Times colleague David Savage writes about the Supreme Court, and he's been writing a lot about the historic nomination of Judge Jackson. David, welcome to The Times. Good to be with you, Gustavo. So you've covered the Supreme Court for almost 40 years. How historic is this moment right now? Not just the hearings for Judge Jackson, but where the court is today. Well, when you put it in a sort of big picture, long picture, I think back to 1991, in the summer of 1991, I remember we got a called the last day of the term, and somebody from the press room says, Justice Marshall is retiring. So we went upstairs to talk to Thurgood Marshall, you know, the first African-American justice, one of the most important civil rights people of the 20th century. But he was 82 years old in poor health. I remember 10 or 12 of us went up to talk to him. He sat in the middle of the room and somebody finally said, Justice Marshall, why are you retiring now? What's wrong with me? I'm old. He said, I'm old and I'm coming apart. Getting old and coming apart. (laughs) Thurgood Marshall didn't say a lot in the courtroom, but he always made his points. He was the most liberal justice of the court then. It was heading right. George H.W. Bush was president. He picked a very young African-American, sort of anti-civil rights person, Clarence Thomas. I think that we have decided that rather than confront the disagreements and the differences of opinion, we'll just simply annihilate the person who disagrees with me. He's been the most conservative member of the court. He's been opposed to things like the Voting Rights Act, affirmative action. And so when I think about this nomination, it is obviously a historic matter to have the first black woman named to the Supreme Court in Ketanji Jackson. But it's also a big deal in the long sense that for 30 years, the only African-American voice on the Supreme Court has been a guy who is a very conservative person who's sort of on the right wing of the Republican Party. And Ketanji Jackson is likely to take positions that I think are closer to the views of most African-Americans in this country. So Judge Jackson, what's her story? 
Because it is an, an amazing story, in my view. The daughter of two school teachers. Uh, they moved to Miami when she was a little kid. What I was most surprised about a couple of weeks ago when I was uh, writing about her, she went to a real high-powered high school in South Miami. This is high school that Jeff Bezos went to. She was the leader of the debate team. I had all these guys I got on the phone with, prominent lawyers in South Florida who said, oh, from 10th or 11th grade on, Katanji was the leader of our group. And one guy said, you know, I remember an incident. There was some guy sat behind a girl in the class and would harass her and grab her and pinch her. He was just a bully and a pain in the neck. One day before class, Katanji Jackson walks across the room, stands in front of him and said, I've seen you do that over and over again. Do not do it again. You have no right to harass her. Do not do it again. She walked back and sat down. And that guy said, you know, that guy never acted up the rest of the year. People really liked her because she was smart and personable, but she was also a strong person. She went to Harvard University, graduated with high honors. She went to the law school there, was an editor of the Law Review, also graduated with honors. So she is a real academic star, but I couldn't find anybody who disliked her or viewed her as, as an enemy. She had clerkships, actually was a clerk for Judge Stephen Breyer, whose seat she's being nominated for. But what's interesting about her resume is that it has some professional accomplishments that no Supreme Court justice has ever had and which has a lot of people really excited about her. Yeah, she described herself in one speech as a sort of a professional vagabond. She didn't go into like one area of the law and stayed there. She bounced around and did a number of things. She said part of it was that like balancing the idea of being a mother of two young children, a busy husband who was a surgeon at Georgetown. And she did a number of different things, but a couple that you are right to mention that are unusual is she spent two and a half years in the federal public defender's office in Washington. One of the really important things she did was represent Guantanamo defendants. You remember Guantanamo, the Bush administration brought all these people who'd been picked up in Afghanistan. They didn't want to charge them as prisoners of war because they had rights. They didn't want to charge them with a crime. And they wanted to hold them indefinitely at Guantanamo with no charges. And the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. You've got to give them some hearings. Because some of them said, look, I, you got the wrong person. I wasn't, I wasn't at all involved in terrorism. And so she worked on a number of cases sort of arguing for giving these people a hearing or giving them some chance to tell their own story. None of the current justices has any experience representing criminal defendants. She spent two years working on the U.S. Sentencing Commission, which most people wouldn't know, but it's a body that oversees sentencing policy. So she learned a lot about criminal sentencing. Then she served a couple of years later as a vice chair of that commission. So I think in one big area, that is crime and punishment, she actually has more experience than any of the recent justices as she comes on the court. What kind of insight does she say she's gotten from that experience defending convicted felons? I haven't heard her say too much. About, I heard her describe why she wanted to do it, because she wanted to see the criminal system from a different perspective. When she's been asked about it, she's basically playing defense because one of the 
Republican attorneys are saying, oh, you represented Guantanamo people. Um, in your uh, career before you were a judge, have you ever represented a terrorist at Guantanamo Bay? About 16 years ago when I was a federal public defender. She was basically assigned these cases, I should say. I talked to her boss. He is still head of the uh, public defender's office. He said he assigned those to her because the law in that area was very confused, a mess. So anyway, she did a lot of those cases. I think it gave her some understanding of how the criminal justice system works. In her own family, she's actually seen both sides of the criminal justice system. She's had two uncles who worked as police officers and police detectives. She also had an uncle, a distant uncle, who got into serious trouble with drugs, spent a lot of years in prison, was finally released, and then died a few years later. So she's actually seen a lot of different sides of the criminal justice system. What struck me in just reading about Judge Jackson is that there's very few former public defenders who are judges, not just in the Supreme Court, but across the United States. Why is that? Well, it has become subject of attention in the last, say, five or 10 years. But if you go back 20 or 30 years and you ask people, who would you rather have if you want to promote somebody to a judge or a politician? A prosecutor is somebody who's representing the public and prosecuting people who committed serious crimes, you know, rapes, murders, robberies, doing the people's business. Criminal defense lawyers and public defenders, they're honorable people doing good work. But for most people, they'd say, oh, yeah, but in the end, they're representing criminals. On the one hand, we honor people who represent criminal defendants. It's important work. It's part of the Constitution. But in the end, a lot of Lawyers don't want to do that work because it's hard work. It doesn't pay well. And in the end, most politicians say, I'd rather promote a prosecutor, somebody who's representing the public and prosecuting bad guys, rather than promote the person who has been diligently representing the person charged with the crime. When we come back, a look at the cases the Supreme Court has coming up and how Judge Jackson could influence them if she gets the confirmation. And we're back with LA Times Supreme Court reporter David Savage. And David, you've covered the hearings for all the current justices and others before them. What can we expect from the actual hearings this week? I'm tempted to say not much. (laughs) It used to be the case many, many, many years ago that public didn't know this. David Souter was in a good example. People didn't know who he was. And senators on both sides would ask good questions. It has become so partisan now that every, in this case, every Democrat will ask a friendly question. And then every Republican will ask a sort of harsh, nasty question. (laughs) There are a couple Republicans on this committee, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and maybe Tom Cotton, who are running for president, and they will take advantage of the opportunity, I bet, to ask her, give her a hard time. I hope we get to see her talk a little bit, explain her views. She's a bright, articulate person, but I don't want to oversell these hearings because they're not a very edifying spectacle anymore. They're very partisan. You don't come away feeling good about having watched a couple hours of those hearings. 
So you expect attacks on her being a public defender, on her defending people from Guantanamo, all of that? Yes. I don't think they have much to attack her with. The Republicans want to find something to criticize her a bit. It'd be interesting to see how far they go, because it sure looks like she's going to be confirmed. I assume they don't want to make a national spectacle of themselves by attacking her relentlessly. But it'll be interesting to see how harshly they uh, criticize her. What do we know about where Judge Jackson stands when it comes to controversial issues like abortion and gun rights and all those other things? She's had very little in the way of rulings on anything like that, abortion, religion, guns. The truth of the matter is that if you're a federal judge in Washington, you get a steady diet of regulatory cases, sometimes environmental cases, workers' rights cases, but they're regulatory cases. They don't get a lot of the hot-button you know, abortion and religion cases. So she has almost no record on anything of that sort that's going to allow people to criticize her for a ruling on this or that. She basically doesn't have such a record. I think the most notable thing that she wrote was this line about uh, Trump saying presidents are not kings. Yes, that's a very good, very long opinion. And it was a question about whether the House Judiciary Committee could get Don McGahn, the former White House counsel, to testify. And she wrote along an opinion basically saying that President Trump is claiming some absolute immunity, that White House officials were absolutely immune from answering any questions. And she said, Constitution didn't make the president king. White House lawyers all say, oh, the president's immune and everybody works for the president's immune. They tend to have this. If you listen to them, you'd think that this was all settled in 1787 or whatever. And she wasn't buying it. So I thought it was quite a good opinion. Say she makes it through a confirmation. What are the cases? What are the big cases that she's going to face when she finally takes the bench for the new Supreme Court term in October? Well, there are two big ones that I think she will be involved in. The court's taking on the college affirmative action issue in cases from Harvard and UNC. Uh, And there's also a challenge to the Voting Rights Act about the part of the Voting Rights Act that allows civil rights lawyers to challenge election districts that basically screen out or dilute the power of African-American or Hispanic voters. The Republicans, by the way, next week will criticize her for a lot and say she should sit out that case because she was on the Harvard Board of Overseers. I think that'll be kicked around a lot. I don't know how it'll be resolved, but affirmative action and voting rights are the two big ones for the fall. And Roe versus Wade will have already been decided by the summer? May well be. Uh, We don't know, but I would guess, based on the conservative group, the way they've talked is that Roe versus Wade is going to be overturned soon, either this summer or another year or two from now. So how influential can Judge Jackson actually be? Because even if she gets on, the Supreme Court's still going to be a 6-3 conservative majority. Yes, that's absolutely right. I think the way to describe it is she could play the inside game or the outside game, or both. The inside game is even as a new justice, you can actually have an influence from day one and for the next 10 years if you're smart and open-minded, the justices will all say, we're very actually interested in what the new person thinks because we've been sitting around the table arguing about the same issues and it's really nice to have somebody new and has got a fresh perspective. I think she's somebody who could cause the other justices to think about issues in a slightly different way or not go down 
the road too far in some case involving crime or police brutality, whatever it is, I think she'll have an influence because I think they will respect her view and be interested in it. There's also the outside game, which I think is, she could be a very important voice, the public, on matters of race or civil rights, if she wants to. People will pay attention. Justice Scalia, I used to joke with him about it at the end of the term. He'd say, geez, I lost all the big cases. But, but, but from, he would write these rip-roaring dissents. And they had a big impact on law students, on the conservative community. I think Katanji Jackson could also be a really influential voice if she chooses to write dissents and say, my colleagues are wrong, we're distorting the Constitution, here's what we should have said. David, thank you so much for this conversation. Oh, good to talk with you. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, Disney's silence on Florida's so-called Don't Say Gay Bill and why many employees are protesting. Freelance producer Maya Croft was a hef on this episode, and our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasalian, Ashley Brown, and Angel Carreras. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editor is Kinsey Moreland. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shani Helton. And our theme music is by Andrew Eatman. And hey, if you like the show and want to help support it and make it grow so we're not the Pucci of podcasts, this is a quick and easy way. Write a review, especially you folks listening on Spotify. Just click on the three dots under our show, then click on great show. And from there, give us the number of stars that you think we deserve. Give us a trillion or whatever. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this month. Gracias. <laughs> <laughs>